Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast, the core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. I'm Anand Swami Nathan. And I'm Jenny Beck Esme. So Jenny, what's been going on? Well, I hear you're going to the, uh, the podcasting course here pretty soon. I am going to the podcasting course, which I'm super excited about. I'm going to be down in Lexington with a bunch of our friends, Salim Rezai and Scott Weingart and Rob Rogers and a bunch of other people. And we're going to be teaching people how to produce high-end podcasts. So it's going to be fun. It's awesome. I love that. So what are we going to talk about today on the podcast? Well, this week in conference, we had a flipped classroom workshop, one of our regular events that we try and do in conference, and it was on CNS infections that you actually helped lead. I thought we could maybe dive into this a little bit and use the same format that we did in conference, but use it for the podcast. Ooh, so we're going to do this just the same way we did it live. So basically, I get to drill you with question after question after question, and if you get them wrong, you're going to do push-ups. Yes, exactly. That's exactly how we run our conference. So uh, I'm okay with it because I don't have to do any work. So let's uh, start off with a case the way that we did our workshop. So you're working and you have a 45-year-old woman who comes in. She's got no past medical history and she presents with fever and neck pain. Her temp is 102.5 in triage. She's appropriately tachycardic, but otherwise she looks pretty good. Vital signs are otherwise okay. Now, obviously the differential here can be quite broad, But we're talking about CNS infections, so let's narrow it down to that. And what are the big ones that you're going to be thinking about at this point? Big ones always are meningitis, encephalitis, and CNS abscesses. It's a nice short list, but of course, within each of these, there's the causative organisms we have to think about, the little bit of a nuances as to where those abscesses can be, where the infection is, the risk factors of the patient. There's so many things that come into play here. When we're talking about meningitis, we've got to consider the viral causes, which are mostly benign. And then, of course, we have to talk about the typical bacterial meningitides. And these are the ones that we get a little more concerned about. We're talking about things like strep pneumo, about Neisseria, and then some of the less typical ones like tuberculosis and fungal causes. Let's not get too, too far ahead of ourselves by thinking about the causative organisms. Let's just back up here for a second and think about the signs and the symptoms. So now the classic triad that we think about for meningitis is fever, neck stiffness, and altered mental status. So if they have all three of those, you're going to proceed with the workup. And if they don't have all three of those, you can pretty much call the dogs off, right? Oh, I wish. I really wish it was only that simple. So the classic three-part triad translates only to about less than 50% of patients. So less than half of our patients with meningitis are going to actually come in with all three of those, fever, neck stiffness, and altered mental status. Fortunately, about 95% of patients will have at least two of the three, and virtually 100% are going to have at least one. So if the patient has no fever, no neck stiffness, and no altered mental status, then you do not have to do the workup. Well, if they don't have any of those three, then why are we even thinking about meningitis in the first place? Yeah. Uh, I think your point here is that the patients don't read the textbook, and so they typically won't come in with the classic triad. And of course, this applies to just about every disease process that we talk about. A lot of these classic triads were really formulated centuries ago when patients came to see physicians or doctors much later in the course of their disease, and so they presented with classic symptoms. Now, neck stiffness on its own has a sensitivity of about 70%. Fever has a sensitivity of about 85%. So clearly, none of these are going to be enough to rule the disease out when they're not present. So other symptoms we're going to want to look for are things like headaches, photophobia, nuchal rigidity, lethargy, malaise, seizures, and vomiting. 
In general, when the patient has things like lethargy, nuchal rigidity, and seizures, they're pretty far gone. So it's not going to be hard to make that diagnosis. It's the more subtle presentations that can be really difficult. So let's get back to our patient who is patiently waiting while we discuss all of these things. Now she says in addition to neck pain and fever, she's got a mild to moderate intensity headache, and she vomited three times before coming in. You notice when you're examining her that she's got a hard time keeping her eyes open in the bright, well-lit room that you're in in the ED. So what about that physical exam? What other things should I be looking for? Well, of course, you're going to look for the old Koenig and Brzezinski signs. Well, of course, except that I can't really remember which one's which. I'm a little bit too far out of medical school, so you're a little bit closer than I am. Can you clear up what each of these is? So the Koenig sign is when the patient is unable to straighten their legs to full extension while lying flat with the hip flexed at a right angle. And the Brudzinski is when flexing the neck passively leads to flexion of the hips. All right. Now, you know, I love a good bedside test. So how good are these for ruling in or ruling out the disease? Unfortunately, they are not so good. So the Koenig, where they can't fully extend their legs is sensitive only at about 5% and has a specificity of about 70 to 100%. The Brudzinski, where when you, flex their, when you flex their neck passively, that leads to the flexion of the hips, that has a sensitivity of 5% and a specificity, again, of about 70 to 100%. All right. So really pretty worthless on the sensitivity. Pretty, so pretty worthless. If you find one of these, that's a pretty good indication that the patient has it, although 70 to 100% for specificity isn't so great. The absence of them clearly doesn't rule anything out. Now, are there any other simple bedside tests that I can do? You mean like an LP? All right. I know that an LP is a simple bedside test for you, but how about something <laughs> slightly less invasive? Well, there's the jolt accentuation test, which I love watching people do to other people. Basically, here you have the patient rapidly move their head back and forth, back and forth, back and forth horizontally, and ask whether this movement exacerbates their headache. This was definitely the hot new test back when I was a senior resident, and I definitely remember saying, yep, patient has a headache and fever, but the jolt accentuation is negative, so it's probably not meningitis. And I said this to a couple of attendings. Some of them let it go, and some of them kind of looked at me like I was crazy. And in retrospect, the ones that looked at me like I was kind of crazy were probably right. Yeah, unfortunately, this test doesn't perform nearly as well as we'd like. It's got a sensitivity of around 87% and a specificity anywhere from 6 to 98%. And I got to say, as somebody who's got migraine headaches in the past, I think any bad headache is going to be worse if you're shaking my head back and forth really bad. So you don't do a lot of headbanging is what you're telling me? <laughs> no, not so much, at least not with a migraine. All right, well, that kind of <laughs> makes sense. And I think those sensitivity and specificities, again, are telling me that my bedside evaluation is not always going to be on point. So what we've got at this point in the workup of our patient is a healthy young patient. And in those patients, meningitis can be tricky. They may simply complain of neck pain or just fever and headache. And we've always got to be thinking about meningitis and whether we need to go further with the workup. Unfortunately, the physical exam is usually not going to be very helpful. Now, going back to our patient, there are no other infectious symptoms to explain the fever and the fact that she's got photophobia has both of us, I think, pretty concerned that meningitis could be at play here. So if we're going to go down that meningitis pathway, what's the next step in our management? So I'd be thinking about four things at this point. IV antibiotics, steroids, a non-con head CT, and an LP. Now, is that the order that you're going to be putting those things in? 
No, not exactly. There was definitely a time when we were taught you had to get the CSF first before you were supposed to start any antibiotics. But that's not true. You absolutely 100% should not delay giving antibiotics while you're waiting to get that LP. The earlier the patient gets the antibiotics, the better. So we're going to go antibiotics first and then everything else can come after that. Well, actually, no. It's probably the steroids that need to go first. The best benefit of the steroids is prior to antibiotic administration. And jog my memory, why are we giving those steroids again? In bacterial meningitis, giving corticosteroids prior to antibiotics reduces hearing loss with a number needed to treat of 21 and prevents short-term neuro consequences with a number needed to treat of 27, though it doesn't actually change mortality. We'll drop a link to the NNT.com's review of this topic, as well as to the Cochrane review of all of this data. All right, so steroids first, and usually we're talking about something like dexamethasone, 0.15 mg per kg, up to a maximum of about 10 milligrams, and then the antibiotics. Now, how about that non-con head CT? Do all patients who we're going to get an LP in need a head CT first? Well, no, but practically speaking, I think the vast majority of all of our adult patients do get one prior to that LP needle going in. The current recommendations from the Infectious Disease Society of America on who needs a CT prior to LP come from a 2001 New England Journal of Medicine article. It basically says to get the CT on any patient who is over 60 years old, immunocompromised, has a history of any CNS diseases, had a seizure within the last week, or has an abnormal neuro exam. Most US EDs have ready access to CT, so it's not a huge issue. But if you don't have that access, there does appear to be a group of patients in whom LP without a CT is safe. From my perspective, the CT is really helpful because sometimes you find other pathology that explains the symptoms, things like an abscess or a mass or even a subarachnoid hemorrhage, where all of these things can have a fever. Additionally, a lot of our patients don't know whether they're immunocompromised, and I'm specifically talking about HIV and AIDS status. So given that it's pretty easy for us to get a CT, it's really not unreasonable to CT everyone prior to the LP. But again, do not hold off on giving the antibiotics while any of these other things are happening. So you mentioned antibiotics a couple of times. Let's talk about what you're going to be giving when you're thinking meningitis. So we need to cover some specific bacteria here. So we're going to give ceftriaxone, which covers Neisseria meningitidis and strapneumo. We need to give Vank, which is going to cover resistant strapneumo. We're going to give ampicillin to cover listeria. And here we're going to give this for young kids, older people, or any immunocompromised patients. So not everybody's going to get this, but a, a good chunk of your patients will. And then it's also good to throw in some acyclovir to cover herpes. That's a good start. The acyclovir, I think, is really important because if you're considering more of an encephalitis picture, the acyclovir is one of the few things that we have that can fight a viral cause. We also have some evidence that if that acyclovir is not started in the emergency department, it may never get started even after the patient gets admitted. Now, let me throw you a couple of curveballs with that antibiotic regimen, and let's see what we get. What antibiotics are you giving to a baby who's, let's say, four weeks old who has a fever and you want to cover their brain? So here you're definitely going to want the ampicillin for listeria, and you're going to change your antibiotics just a little bit and give them cefetaxime and gentamicin. Right, and that's because that ceftriaxone is not safe in the very, very young. How about the post-neurosurgical patient who comes in with fever and altered mental status? Well, here you're going to want to give Vank to cover any resistant staph and strep, and then give Cefepime because they're going to have an increased risk of pseudomonas. All right, so you're upgrading from Ceftriaxone to Cefepime to make sure that we cover all of those gram-negative bugs, but specifically you're going to be worried about pseudomonas. 
Yeah. Let's get back to our case. You give antibiotics, and this is a healthy young patient. We're not too worried about very resistant bugs, so we give ceftriaxone, we give the vancomycin, and let's say that we do decide to give acyclovir. We've given the steroids before that. The patient has gone to head CT, and the head CT is normal. You're going to get a lumbar puncture, but when you get that fluid back, what labs are you going to be sending off? So you're going to need two tubes that have a cell count. You're going to send a cell count on your first tube and on your last tube. You're going to want a gram stain and a culture, protein, and glucose. The cell count, the gram stain, and the culture are probably the most important of what we're doing. Protein and glucose, not really that helpful, although we do routinely get them. You always want to snag an extra tube or two because you may consider getting some other tests. So in the right patient population, an AFB for TB, crypto, herpes, PCR, there's also other cultures that we can send depending on the patient's characteristics and what specific situations you're worried about. And you're also going to want to get that opening pressure. It can tip you off to things like a cryptococcal infection, and it's really a free data point. You're doing the LP anyway. All right, so your LP is done, you're waiting on the cell count, the gram stain, and you start thinking, you know, she looks pretty good. All things considered, even though she's got a fever and a little bit of tachycardia, she's okay. Maybe this is just viral meningitis. Now, can we use the cell count that we get back to make that determination? Well, classic teaching would say yes, but classic teaching is going to lose out again here. In reality, early viral meningitis can have a, a PMN predominance, just like a, a bacterial meningitis. And uh, the gram stain can be negative in 20 to 40% of bacterial meningitis cases. So you can't really say for sure right away. So the bottom line is keep the antibiotics going until the cultures are negative. Any other CSF tests that may be helpful? Well, how about a CSF lactate? Not something that we often do, but at a cutoff of 3.8 millimoles per liter, it's got a sensitivity of 94% and a specificity of 97% for differentiating bacterial meningitis from viral meningitis. Really not too shabby. Yeah, those numbers are based off of limited studies, but it's another data point. You've already gotten the CSF, so why not send it off? Now, we went on from here to tackle some other CNS infections during conference, but I think that's a pretty good place for us to stop today. So this patient gets admitted to the hospital, but before we go, there's just one more little kink. One of the other residents tells you that he wants to register and get chemoprophylaxis for meningitis because he was in the same part of the department as the patient. What do you think? You're going to give it to him? Well, chemoprophylaxis is really only necessary if the patient has meningococcus, but we don't always know that in the ED. If the ED provider was in close contact with the patient and was exposed to secretions, so really close contact, it's reasonable to give chemoprophylaxis, but we shouldn't just offer it to everyone who's in the department or, or everyone who's in the neighborhood because they don't really have that higher risk. The main thing we want to make sure we're doing is to prophylax the household contacts who were in close contact with the patient. Typically, you're going to go with either rifampin, 600 milligrams, or in kids, 10 mg per kg. That one's dosed every 12 hours for four doses. You could also go with Cipro, 500 milligrams as a single dose, or ceftriaxone, 250 milligrams IM as a single dose. All right, Jenny, now that's a bit of a big topic, but I think we got some good stuff in there. So why don't you hit us with the take-homes? Sure. So first, the classic meningitis triad of fever, neck stiffness, and altered mental status is actually not very common as a presentation. If the patient has two or even just one of these symptoms, make sure to keep meningitis somewhere in your differential. Two, the physical exam findings like Koenig's and Brzezinski signs can help you rule in meningitis, but their absence shouldn't really reassure you too much. Ultimately, the physical exam may not be terribly helpful in these patients. 
Third, when worried about meningitis, it is crucial to get the antibiotics on board ASAP. Give steroids first to prevent some of the neurologic sequelae of meningitis, and then get your antibiotics on board. The classic antibiotics are vanc and ceftriaxone. Throw in some acyclovir to help cover herpes, and if the patient is young, old, or immunocompromised, add the ampicillin. And then last, your last step in this whole workup is going to be the CT and LP. While you don't have to do a CT on everyone prior to the LP, it may lead to an alternative diagnosis, and it's usually pretty fast and easy to do from the ED, so we generally do it. I love those take-home points. They're absolutely fantastic. Well, that's all for the Core EM podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coreem.net. We've got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. We'll have a core post up on Wednesday and a journal update up on Thursday. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page, follow us on Google Plus, and on Twitter, where our handle is at core underscore EM. Thanks, and see you all next week.